Critical Care Practitioner Podcast number 23. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham and this is the podcast to inform, debate and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Hi, my name is Dr. Min Kong. I'm with the Royal Flying Doctor Service of Australia. I'm coming to you from Queensland, Cairns. This is the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. Stay tuned for some fantastic stuff. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. Back a bit sooner than usual. As I said in the last podcast, I'm going to try and release one podcast a week for a little while. I've got a bit of a backlog, and I don't like them sitting in the uh, archives waiting to be released when I... And managed to persuade people to come and talk to me and they kindly done so I want you to hear it as well so that's why this one's out a little quicker than the others. This episode is with a nurse called Lee Cutler he's a consultant nurse and he and a colleague called Paula Sluman released an article uh, last year called reducing ventilator associated pneumonia in adult patients through high standards of oral care which was in intensive and critical care nursing last year. There will be a link in the show notes, so by all means go and have a look at the article. Myself and Lee talk about why they decided to do this piece of research, the process they went through, and some of the outcomes. So please go ahead and listen, let me know what you think, and we'll talk after the show. Lee, um, the reason um, we got in touch, as I I said, was to talk uh, mainly about your paper that was um, looks like it was accepted in 2013 and is in the intensive and critical care uh, nursing volume 30 issue 2 I believe if I'm right right. and the title is reducing ventilator associated pneumonia in adult patients through high standards standards of oral care um, and historical control study can you just tell me um, what kind of what were the driving forces behind you doing the study first and foremost what What's out there that made you concerned about this and made you want to to do this study? Okay, that's a really important question. I, I think that um, we're in a, in, in terms of the unit that I work in and the service that we provide, we are constantly looking for ways to improve the quality of care, and we're conscious of safety and avoidable harm. All the, all the you know the current ethos of trying to reduce complications. We'd been involved in things like Matching Michigan, so that was about reducing central line infections and various other service improvement programs, quality improvement programs. That was something that was kind of ticking along in the background. We we struggled as a critical care network to try and do a cross-network piece of work. So there are five trusts in the area. We'd constantly thought about how do we do a joint piece of work on VAP. And the, the first sort of step in that was agreeing a definition of VAP. And if anybody's done any reading about ventilator associated pneumonia, they'll know one of the major challenges is is there such a definition? Did you find one, or did you just kind of no, we, we think want to get made our own up, really? Which was okay. Well, putting aside all the complexities of some of the microbiology and the various tests, we we kind of thought that if if a, an intensive care consultant with all the all the 
data they can lay their hands on have decided to prescribe antibiotics in today's um, climate of, of, you know, of, of wanting to be very uh, careful about use of, of antibiotics with resistance, etc. If they'd chosen to make the judgment that this was a, a an infection in the chest which was it had fallen 48 hours after ventilation, so it wasn't anything that was to do with the, the pre-ventilation period. We thought that that was a, a reasonable, you know, criteria to meet to say this is now a ventilator-associated pneumonia. So we we'd all kind of accepted that definition in the net, in the critical care network, and we were trying our best to figure out practical ways of counting the numbers of patients. And and we worked on that for a little while, and and the kind of first part of the study for me was. Um, establishing a, a fairly reliable way of measuring that each week, each month, and getting a, a baseline number of how many, according to that criteria, how many VAPs do we have each month? Um, and we used we we looked at incidents, and then we we also calculate VAPs per thousand ventilator days. And the first part of it was really getting a nice steady baseline and thinking, okay, so it jumps about a little bit, but this is the number that we tend to have from one month to the next. Were you getting a fairly consistent number then? Uh, it, it jumped around a little bit. We, we definitely had some peaks and troughs. But, I mean, if anybody's done any work on, you know, the run chart, using things like run charts, you'll know that until, you know, until you've got at least 10 points or thereabouts on a run chart, it's difficult to say we've, we found what the, the mean is, the baseline. Um, it, it varied a fair bit. And the other thing that we, as you'll know, critical care, in, in terms of the, the conditions that people present with it can be quite seasonal sometimes. So we know that there's more flu in winter, etc. Sometimes it may, you know it gives a bit of a seasonal variation. But we we had a, a reasonable baseline. We had, we had a 15 month period over which we'd measured VAPs, and, and we thought that that was a, a reasonable point at which, given that there was emerging evidence about using things like you know a high strength of chlorhexidine, we thought well it, it's a reasonable point at which we want to have a go at implementing some of these newer things um, yeah. to, to test against that baseline, really. So that's, that was the kind of beginning of the study. It, it was about wanting to do better. It was about accepting that whilst the definition wasn't perfect and the data might not be perfect, we'd got, a, we'd got to a point where we thought we, we don't really want to wait much longer before we try and improve things. And we, and we use that as a baseline to test against really. Okay. Why then did you decide, because, you know, part of the care bundle for present, preventing um, a VAP is, includes lots of other different things, why specifically did you go down uh, through, the, through the oral care rather than, you know, perhaps sitting the patient at 30 degrees and all the other things we can do? What, what was the reason for that? Yeah, well, we, we were already doing those basic things. We, we, we had a care bundle around ventilator-associated pneumonia that we'd had in for several years, from about 2007, which included those basic things. Uh, along with, you know, a broader uh, critical care care bundle around um, thromboprophylaxis and haemoglobin trigger and all the other stuff that people are probably looking at. But within the, yeah. specifically in the part which was looking to reduce ventilator-associated pneumonia, we were already using um, daily sedation breaks, um, head up, you know, head elevation, appropriate humidification, things like that. Um, so it it was a tweaking part of the care bundle we were already using that we were looking to do. There didn't seem to be any change in the evidence around what angle do we, we sit the patient up to or anything else. But the, the 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 recommendation around having a higher strength of chlorhexidine seemed to be the key thing. And that kind of coincided with a few papers I'd read from, you know, papers from the Far East about improving oral care, clearing the oropharynx. And 
I guess the other thing on a very sort of nursing level was that, you know, as you always do, you improve one thing, take your eye off the ball and look round and realise that something which seemed to be very good is kind of reduced in standard a bit. And we were a little bit unhappy with the oral, the standard of oral care. So we said, let's, let's improve the whole thing. Let's try and make sure that people are more vigilant about mouth care because that's better for the patient. Uh, and, and whilst we're doing it, let's, Let's add in the chlorhexidine. Let's make sure we've got really good, a good regime for brushing teeth and keeping the mouth as clean as possible and keeping the oropharynx clean. So that that really was the major test. That was that was the thing we were looking at. Does can we improve the standard of oral hygiene and does that make a difference to to that? So it, it, it kind of a before and after study. Then, yes, that absolutely. Yeah, that's and we call it. It's a posh name, isn't it? Historical control. Saying we, yeah. we're using the the old numbers that we collected as the control, and then when we change something, what happened afterwards? So yeah, a, a before and after study. So what were you doing before, and what did you start doing after? Okay, so in terms of preventing VAP, we we did already have a, a, a guideline in the handbooks that we keep up at the bedside, which which were were around um, using a weaker solution, a point zero two percent solution of chlorhexidine. And sitting the patients up, aiming for 45 degrees, but accepting that in some patients with, for example, brain injury, that was going to be around 30. Um, ensuring that they had humidification, uh, a daily sedation break, unless there were any contraindications to that. Um, and, you know, routine suctioning of patients and changing the ventilator tubing as, as manufacturer's recommendations. Those were the things which, which we were doing already. And the, the change that we made was specifically saying, okay, because we know that toothpaste inactivates some of the chlorhexidine, we're going to brush, we're going to, we're going to leave a bit of a gap between when we brush teeth and when we use the chlorhexidine. So we said we'll brush teeth a couple of times a day, twice a day, in six o'clock in the morning, six, six o'clock in the evening in ventilated patients. And then we were going to use, um, a stronger strength of chlorhexidine. This was chlorhexidine gel four times a day. So we were doing that at eight, two, eight and two. And we went for a 1% strength of chlorhexidine because, well, and still is, we, we, in the, in the NICE guidelines it had talked about 1 to 2% chlorhexidine. We couldn't source any 2% chlorhexidine. So we, we went for the 1% strength and that's what we're still using in a gel form. So the, the key bit was brushing the teeth, adding the chlorhexidine. And then from a practical point of view, um, we thought the best time to clear someone's oropharynx was just before you turn them because it was, it, it, it was linked to another activity. And the last thing nurses want to do is turn a patient and then, you know, get a dirty pillow with the secretion from someone's mouth. So they say, if you do some suction before you turn them over, you'll get a nice, nice, clear, nice dry mouth. Then you can turn them over. You're not going to get saliva on your nice, clean linen on the pillow. Uh, mm-hmm. And and that seemed to be a practical way of doing it. So it was suction, teeth brushing and chlorhexidine stronger strength that we added in as an intervention. Okay. Um, and the study then went on for how long? I mean, is it fair to call it a study or is it just a practice you've continued? Did you actually, was there a stopping point or did you just continue and then just decide we collect the figures at this point in time? Okay, that's, it's an interesting question. From a, a study point of view, because we had 15 months data, you know, and, and just over 500 patients, what we thought it was reasonable to do was carry on collecting the, well, with the practice, obviously carry on with the mouth care, because that's just, that just seemed like good practice anyway. But in terms of measuring two groups and saying, is there a difference between these two groups? We aimed for 15 months afterwards. And in doing that, we got approximately similar sized groups, give or take a, a couple of dozen really, in terms of 
numbers in the historical con- the historical control, so that's the before group and the after group. So whilst that was the measurement of we've got around 500 and odd patients on each side and we've got around 15 months either side, that was the that from a statistical point of view, that's what we wanted to get in each group. In terms of continuing the practice, uh, then I've, then we have carried that. We we thought it was beneficial on lots of levels, so we've we've carried on using that exact same protocol, the teeth brushing, the oropharyngeal clearance, and using the chlorhexidine since then as well. So we've we've not really changed anything. Okay. So what was your what was your um, what was the primary endpoint originally of the study, and and what was the results of that? Okay, so we we wanted to. Well, one of the things was continuing to measure compliance as well. We we knew what the compliance was. We kind of observed that periodically, and we we checked what what nurses were doing. So we said, let's try and make sure that before the change and after the change, the standards don't improve or de- decrease significantly. Mm-hmm. So we were measuring like with like, and we we looked at the age and the case mix of patients in before and after group as well. But the key thing we were measuring outside of compliance then, um, in terms of uh, endpoints you've mentioned, was how many patients actually get ventilator-associated pneumonia. So um, in the, the, the key finding, really, there was about 50% difference, um, a, a decrease from the group beforehand and the group afterwards. So we had, in the, in the before group, we had 528 patients and 47 of those developed a ventilator-associated pneumonia. Uh, in the in the group after the change, we had 559, so a similar number, give or take, but there were only 24, so a, a, approximately um, 50% less in the group which came after the change. Okay, I mean, was I mean, was was the study powered? Um, you, you know, was the numbers, or was it just what you could collect over the 15 month period? Exactly, yes. And what we tried to do is well. This was ongoing as a piece of work anyway, and we we were trying to use this rather than a you know for for a pure research study. We were trying to improve practice and give a higher standard of care. So we yeah. were we were as, as diligently as we could collecting this data um, every month. As I say, not not as you might read a traditional study and think this has been set up just for the purposes of the study, but this was a, a snapshot in our journey to try and improve the care on the unit and. We we carried on we carried on collecting the data ever since we, we've carried on collecting the data now in terms of, of how we're doing with that. Um, but the, I mean the other thing to mention was that we, we we looked at this from a cost point of view as well. It was clearly more expensive to use a higher strength of chlorhexidine and make other changes. Um, but we wanted to see whether there was any cost differences and, and just there are lots of things we could have looked at, but we just picked antibiotics and said, did we spend less money on, on antibiotics in? The group afterwards versus versus before the change, and you know there was a there was a bit of a difference in those as well. But we we could go into lots of complex um, issues about how do we measure um, cost savings as well. We we didn't want to get into that. It gets very very it's a whole other subject, I think, um, cost savings. But we we saw a significant difference, and so we've we've carried on collecting the data as I say. Okay. Um, so presumably you didn't go into things like um, um, length of st- uh, reduced length of stay in ITU or days on ventilator, did you? Um, well, I mean the very fact that you reduced your 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 VAP probably had some consequences, didn't it? But presumably that's not something you measured. We didn't. We we could have looked at well. I mean, in terms of um, a before and after study again, in terms of have we changed anything like length of stay? We've got a a big 
complex population, I guess, that we are looking, you know, we, we could say to you the average length of stay is X for our unit. But that, at either ends of those, um, of that population, we've got some people who stay very short periods of time and very long periods of time. And we have to then start asking ourselves, so is the average or the mean or the median, you know, a reasonable marker of whether the VAP's made any difference? And I think looking at the, the complex case mix that we've got, I'm not sure that counting length of stay would really have, have helped us very much because from year to year, it seems to, you know, jump about quite a bit. And that's very much dependent on who comes through the doors. And then we start saying, well, OK, let's clean the data a bit and chop the bottom off and chop the top off and what's it left us with. But I still think, you know, we we if we're talking about a difference of, you know, 20 odd patients, I'm, I don't think it would be um, such a dramatic difference and, and a difference that you could say is solely due to reducing VAP. There are so many other things which we're doing at the same time. It's a pretty complex population when you start to look at it. Yeah, and I think, you know, in one of the, in your conclusion, one of the things that you say that is the limitations of the study relate to analysis of other variables, in particular severity of illness. And I think that's fair, isn't it? You've obviously got a very complicated case mix there. And to say that, you know, this necessarily had a direct bearing, um, it, once again, you're going to get the statisticians getting very excited about all the various numbers there, aren't you? So. Um, it's notoriously so, difficult, sorry. It's notoriously difficult to, do research in intensive care in that population and and look for a difference. We've seen numerous interventions over the years, haven't we, where things are, are in and out of vogue in terms of someone does a very good study saying this this thing reduces mortality significantly and then we get a repeat of that study which says no, it doesn't. And the critical thing is it, it's a very difficult population to try and show a difference in mortality or length of stay or anything like that because there are just so many variables in that population. It's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to read up all the research on the various subjects in intensive care and it changes from month to month and you, you, you're always finding yourself trying to keep up with this treadmill, really, aren't you? Has it um, led on to um, any any other trials that you're thinking of doing in the future or has it uh, shaped the way that you're moving forward? I think that in terms of VAP specifically, what it, what it has done, it's given us a, a reasonable baseline against which we can, you know, for example, I'll give you an example. People will, will come to the unit constantly with different products saying, how about trying our product? It's, you know, other people are using it, other units are using this product and um, they, they like it, for example. They might not give us hard evidence, but they'll say lots of other units are using this. this is, there is some evidence that this reduces VAP. And because we've now got a, a pretty robust um, system for counting VAPs on a month-by-month month month basis. Anything mm. we do in terms of a new product then might, might be something like an ET tube or continuous versus intermittent suction, whatever the, the things are which are trendy at the minute, it gives us a reasonable baseline for testing those products. And, you know, that, that's not always popular with reps because they, they, there isn't um, very good evidence for lots of these things. But what we're interested in is within our population, if we with a mix of things that we do for the patients. If we try something and it works, we're likely to say, yeah, yeah that seems to work for us and we, we might buy that in future. But that's been the key difference, that we've, we think we've got a reasonable baseline now to test things against. And that might be just internal tweaks or it might be, you know, different kinds of products. But that's been the major thing in terms of that. If, in terms of transferring over to other things, again, it's, I think just generally, 
in the current climate of quality and service improvement, it, it helps you realise that, you know, that there are, there's lots of research out there. When, when we read some of the papers, it sounds very impressive to begin with that they've reduced mortality or length of stay or other morbidity mortality variables. But it's one thing reading it in a paper within a research trial, and it's a completely different thing, a new challenge when you say, can we actually deliver this safely in the unit that we work in? Mm. And what interests me is that, you know, we, I certainly don't work in a very, it's not a very academic unit, it's not a very academic trust, but we try our best to, to deliver the best care we can. And what matters to me is when we try something, does it make a difference to the to the care and standards that we're, we're delivering and the outcomes? And that's a that's a different question often, isn't it, to research? Should we just adopt the what's been reported in a study, or should we try and improve things in the study in the area that we work? And to me, that's that's kind of where it's given us a little bit of confidence to try and um, measure some baseline of various things and try and improve it and see if we can make a difference to the patients that we serve. Because every unit is different, every population is different, um, and and research, as you said earlier, that there are lots of barriers to getting research into into um, individual units, but. This kind of improvement um, ethos is something we can start today and do do much more quickly. And it's just a nice, safe baseline to test things against. And is um, during the study, did you find it relatively easy to bring your nurses alongside? Because, you know, if you can get them on side and get them interested as well, then any study is going to probably benefit from that, I would think. I think um, we, well, in the unit in Doncaster, we have um, over 100 nurses. We've got 10 critical care consultants and then all the visiting, rotating doctors and nurses and therapists, etc. It's a really large group of staff, I feel, to to impart a message on, to get them to change habits and behaviours. And it was a major challenge, really, to get to get people to change what they were doing. Um, in terms of sustaining that, which is, uh, I don't know if you can ask me about that later, really, how have we managed to sustain that change? That's a real, that is a real challenge. We we have an influx of new staff, you know, we take on sort of 10 or so new staff nurses, that's 10% of your workforce, and then you just think you're getting those up to speed and doing very well, and you've got a new set, they all learn from each other. Sometimes, you you know, as I said earlier, you kind of take your eye off the ball, because you think that part of the service is actually going very well. You start to move on to look at something else. You turn you you turn around again. I realise that slipped a little bit here. So there's a there's a major challenge in delivering consistent standards, you know, to a guideline that you produced. And that we I think we found that in the study. Um, it was a major challenge. We put lots of effort into it. Um, and it's been even a greater challenge sustaining that through through various issues. And one issue is, as I say, is new staff. Another issue is that we we ran there was a supplier problem with chlorhexidine that we were using for a significant period of time. Right. So we had to go back to the old, weaker solution of chlorhexidine until the manufacturing problem resolved itself. Then, when when it was available again, we back to the challenge of what are we using? We use but going back to the new solution, you know, the, the stronger solution. And in the middle of all that, people do get mixed messages and start to think, well, why have we changed this? And, Certainly communicating and, and getting people to um, all do the same thing is it's just a huge challenge, I would suggest, these days. It's the, it's the greatest challenge we face. Not not deciding what we need to do, but actually achieving it in practice in a large group of staff is, is, a, is a real difficult situation. Absolutely. So presumably, did you, I mean, you, there was a team of people uh, involved in this investigation other than just you. Was it uh, other members of staff or was it somebody from a research department or...? Um, the, the two key people, key people were myself and Paula. So Paula Sluman is the other author of the paper. Um, yeah. She, at the time, she's left us now. She's she's moved on to a, another job. But at the time, 
followers, because um, I mean, it's interesting, you're asking me about the academic program. We'd collected the baseline data and Paula was just starting to um, study the critical care program that we deliver. And she was doing that at master's level. And, and as I said earlier, one of the the um, requirements is that they undertake a service improvement project. So Paula came to me and said, Lee, you know, have you got any ideas? Is there anything that we really need to pull our socks up around on the unit? And I said, well, it's interesting. I've got this data on back and we really could do with looking at our current guideline, reviewing the evidence again. So Paula... It was a, a really good student. She went and said, let me do a, a literature review and let's look at what the evidence is suggesting we should do if, if it's anything different. So Paula was a real, real strength because she kind of drove the thing forward and um, helped me with the project immensely and led lots of it, really. She She's since presented this at conferences in terms of posters. Um, but the, the two of us did this. It, it wasn't a terribly complex uh, piece of work. And I, I got a doctorate. I'd done some statistical um work before so I, I got a bit of advice and we tried to keep the statistics fairly simple so we, we didn't do it as, uh, you know in conjunction with any academic department and we just did this between us and then obviously uh, sort of opinion leaders and, and people we could get to um, help us implement the new protocol on the unit and lots of people because it was about something very basic and related to nursing care it was about mouth care which is a, a real comfort issue for lots of patients people were quite keen to improve this aspect of care it, it wasn't seen as something which was highly technical and scientific it was about improving a, a basic element of care and see if it makes a see if it makes a difference and to be honest lee surely that's what nurses should be doing isn't it as well you know we we can all get very excited about you know studying what type of fluid you give them is it chloride free or is it not but ultimately if you're going to bring nurses along as part of the research process you want to get them involved and bring them bringing them along means picking a subject that they've got some vested interest in so i think that's probably you know a, a massive bonus to the study you've done because they can see the the benefits of it firsthand in their bedside nursing care absolutely absolutely i, I do think it's about how do we how do we engage nursing staff um and the challenge is you know making the link between what they might read in a journal or a book and what they're actually doing at bedside keeping that link between, you know, if you like, the, the evidence or the theoretical side of things and the things that they do on a daily basis. Um, that critical thinking, can I do it any better? Can we do it any better as a group? Is a really important thing to do. But it's, it's tremendously difficult, especially given the, you know, the pace of work these days I find in, in healthcare and certainly the NHS. Things, the demands are increasing, the, the, the markers, you know, by which we've been judged in terms of quality, etc. they're constantly increasing, aren't they? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a really challenging place to work these days, but I think that there are some amazing staff, and I work with some amazing staff who work very motivated and really interested to get engaged in projects like this, so it's been a pleasure really to do it. Excellent. And I, you know, from my point of view, I think that one of the things that the nursing profession needs to get the grip with a little bit more is getting the nursing students um, talking about um, their nursing care on uh with with research very much in mind and and getting them starting on that pathway a lot earlier you know i i think certainly when i trained gazillions of years ago the research process was kind of paid lip service to i don't know how much more they get involved with it now but i suspect not a great deal more i don't know what your experience of that is i think teaching research as a subject without um an area of practice or, or case studies or some really good examples is a very difficult thing because it starts to sound dull as dishwater, doesn't it? <laughs> when you start to talk about statistics and other things, you, you need something, you know, I suppose like 
you, you'll probably find in, in critical care generally, if, we, if we're going to look at an aspect of the science underpinning critical care, we learn it a lot better and retain it a lot better if we can apply it to a particular patient that we've cared for or been involved in. And I think the same applies for research for me. If, if we're discussing an aspect of practice that people are, have got questions about or they're struggling with or there's a particular patient that's, that's raised an issue, and that's it's a fantastic springboard for the start to look at the evidence and research because people are already engaged and they've, they've got a, an interest in you know why should I bother looking at research well because it might affect my patient to teach it as a as an isolated sterile subject is is very difficult I think yeah yeah absolutely right Lee thank you very very much I've taken thirty eight minutes of your time rather <laughs> than thirty I promise so I apologise for that it's been really interesting to talk to you. Smack US Chicago June 23rd to 26th 2015 Nixon Flower Weingart May Rohi Malimat Levitan Reed Carly Rogers Got the date? June 23rd to 26th 2015 Smack US Chicago. Book it now. Well, thanks, Lee, for that. It's nice to hear some of the other research that's going on out there, and I hope you found it interesting too, um, especially when it's led by some of my nursing colleagues out there in the critical care world. And like I've said before, my critical care background is not something I intend leaving behind despite my new role. The other thing I wanted to talk about briefly because I do need to earn a bit of money on the side occasionally, is myself and Dan Higgins, who is at HEST Training, that's H-E-S-T-R-A-I-N-G. We're running another history-taking and clinical examination course in Walsall next month. Um, So if you wanted to attend that, you'd be more than welcome. It's a three-day course. We go from history-taking through all the examinations, neuro, cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, abdo, etc. It's run by myself, Dan will be there as well, and another practitioner called um, Nathan, who is a physio practitioner at the Heart of England Trust, will also be there to teach the musculoskeletal element, as that's not my area of expertise. So if you wanted to join us, go to my website, you'll find it on the clinical examination tab, and if you click on the link there, it'll take you to the necessary contact to come and join us. It'd be lovely to see you there. I got good feedback on the last one, which was done last September, so I'm sure you can come along and learn an awful lot as well, um, and get a lot of hands-on practice with myself and Dan and Nathan. The final thing I wanted to say, because I've already taken an awful lot of your time, was just to thank my first Patreon donation very kindly donated uh, on an episode-by-episode basis. I do have to pay out to um, host this podcast, so any support I get is more than gratefully accepted. So you know who you are. Thanks very, very much. I really am very grateful. Um, Every little bit helps. Okay, that'll do. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you found it useful, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Bye-bye.